0: Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education pediatric podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice and now here's grand rounds good morning everyone now welcome to grand rounds uh, hopefully everyone's staying safe having a nice cup of coffee or tea this morning uh, ready to uh, listen about sleep and adolescence the perfect storm and hopefully you're wide awake for this one this is going to be really really important and uh it we really will. Have to, we have a, a just a tremendous individual who's going to be giving the grand rounds this morning uh, and I'm sure this is one that will be listened over and over again in many places. I do want to say thank you yesterday for the you know celebration of the Martin Luther King Day. It just uh, reminds us of of equity and inclusion and the importance of being inclusive across the world, across Connecticut Children's, uh, and all the things that we do here. So, you know, an important moment to to celebrate and and, remem- and remember Dr. King. For today's Grand Rouse, I, I have the real pleasure of introducing uh, Dr. Javiva Veller, Dr. Veller is, uh, you know, uh, very proud that we were able to recruit her here. We stole her away from New York City. Uh, It's a much better commute for her, uh, and we're so happy that she's here. And you can see, and just I'm going to tell you a little bit about her so you can see why we were so lucky to bring her to Connecticut Children's. Uh, She is the head of the Division of Pediatric Pulmonary Medicine and has been doing that since the spring of uh, last year. Uh, Her training, uh, bachelor's from Technion, Israel's uh, Institute of Technology, School of Medicine in Haifa in Israel and her MD from the same institution. She did her pediatric residency initially uh, at Hadassah University Hospital in Jerusalem and then she came to the U.S. to uh, do a pediatric residency and internship at Maimonides Infant and Children's Hospital in Brooklyn. She followed that with a pediatric pulmonary and sleep medicine fellowship at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and then uh, again uh, following her fellowship she was an attending physician at CHOP for a year, and then, uh, and then followed. Uh, she followed with, uh, again, going back to New York City, uh, to the Children's Hospital of uh, Montefiore in New York. Uh, she was the director of the pulmonary function test and founder uh, of the Technology dependent Center of the Children's Hospital in Montefiore. One of the things in her CV, which is really impressive, is that she not only directs, but she founds. So, I mean, she's somebody with an innovative mind that begins something and finishes and moves it forward. I'm really, really proud of what she has done. In 2010, she joined the Division of Pulmonary, Allergy, and Immunology at the Weill Cornell College of Medicine, a Medical College. Uh, in 2012, she founded the Pediatric Sleep Center in New York Presbyterian Hospital, which she led until she moved here to Connecticut Children's. In 2020, she was appointed Medical Director of the Division of Allergy, and Immunology, and Pulmonology at the same institution. She's been the recipient of numerous awards uh, back in Israel. Uh, she's pub- published in numerous papers and a uh, book chapter. Uh, she's triple boarded in pediatrics and pediatric pulmonary medicine and sleep medicine. So we like to, you know, we always tell our psychiatrists are triple boarded but our pulmonologists are triple boarded here too at Connecticut Children's. And uh, again, we, we were very fortunate after a very large and extensive national search uh, to recruit uh, Habiba to Connecticut Children's in the Department of Pediatrics. Uh, and uh, everything that she promised to be, she has been. Uh, not only is she incredibly accomplished, but she is a, a kind kind individual, uh, which is you know the type of faculty that we like to uh, bring to Connecticut Children's. And she is transforming the division of uh, pulmonary medicine, which is a formidable division with a long story history with great division heads. Um, and now she follows that. And what she will talk about today is sleep and adolescence, the perfect storm. So Dr. Veller, uh, please come to the podium and give your grand round
1: all right good morning everyone and thank you everyone for uh spending the hour with me this morning uh, to talk about the topic that is very close to my heart uh in adolescence and we'll talk about why is it so close to my heart okay i have no conflict of interest so today we'll talk about adolescence and sleep which is two subjects that don't always go together we'll talk about the current state and the consequences We'll talk about circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorder, which is a major issue in uh, adolescent sleep. And we'll touch on sleep disorders that happen during adolescence: insomnia, narcolepsy and obstructive sleep apnea. And then at the end, we'll talk about public health advocacy uh, available for us to um, intervene and improve. So the reason I, uh, this topic is so close to my heart uh, started with uh, a lecture um, I, um, I attended when I was in one of the sleep conferences. The director of uh, the National uh, Traffic Safety uh, Association was there. He's a sleep physician himself. And he gave a talk about motor vehicle accidents um, as the leading cause of, uh, of death in uh, adolescence. Um, and over here, you can see that um, about 50% of uh, death in adolescence is unintentional, and 73% of that is because of motor vehicle accidents. So really, um, it's a major issue. We are really, as pediatricians and specifically as sleep physician, really obligated to educate and to try to mitigate this very prevented, preventable cause of death. So hopefully I will get you on my team and uh, um, have you uh, help me preventing this from happening. So um, young drivers between the ages of 80, 18, I'm sorry, 18 and 29 really have the highest likelihood uh, to drive while drowsy. And this is a poll that was taken by the National Sleep Foundation, founding 71% of teenagers uh, admitted for driving while drowsy. Um And we know that um teenagers really significant uh percent of them do not get enough uh hours of sleep, so six out of ten middle school children don't get enough sleep, and seven out of ten of high schoolers don't get enough sleep um and we 'll talk about what is enough sleep in these ages so why is adolescence such a problematic uh, uh time period for specifically about sleep, it's because it's time of transition and teens really have the a social push, behavioral changes in circadian rhythms that really all come together and create what we call the perfect storm that interrupts with sleep. What's the adolescent sleep needs? We're talking about eight and a half to a little bit over nine hours of sleep that is recommended. And we know that 75% of 12 graders Uh, don't get uh, the the minimum of eight hours of sleep a night, and only 3% of 12 grader really get the nine hours that are needed. One of the questions that I get asked very often in sleep clinic is how many hours of sleep my child really needs? Um, And I I always say, you know, there's variation between kids uh, on really what's the uh, amount of sleep that is needed, But as a general rule, um, you get enough sleep if you are able to wake up without an alarm clock, maintain a consistent amount of sleep through the entire week and weekend, and don't have daytime sleepiness. Um, How many of us can say that they can do that, right? Um, So really, there are many consequences. This is pretty much a summary slide for the whole talk but we'll go through the details and i'll show you um there's myriad of uh, uh causes that interrupt sleep in adolescence right we have the circadian biology which works against sleep and we'll talk about that in the next few slides we have higher uh, uh school demands with a lot of homework after a uh, school hours some of the teens work right they have extra demand on their time And some of them have extensive extracurricular activities, right? We want our teens to engage in sports and in arts, whatever is interesting for them. And then the uh, last um, straw uh, uh, that impacts adolescent sleep is technology, which is a big thing and really affects the sleep. So all that leads to chronic insufficient sleep, and that uh, can cause poor sleep uh, poor school performance right Uh, decrease in executive function right if you're tired you just can't concentrate you can um, work as well as you uh, want to Uh, there's a huge effect on mood Um, we talked about the motor vehicle accidents there's also uh, insufficient sleep leads to increased weight and obesity Uh, and not to mention effects on inflammation metabolic dysfunction and cardiovascular Dysfunction, uh, which is beyond the scope of of this talk, so how do we evaluate uh, sleep in uh, adolescents um, and this is really something that can be done um, uh, in the pediatrician's office during well visits. so first, uh, um, I want to know their bedtime routine I'm asking about timing and consistency of the uh, bedtime activity, so uh, it goes with what is the sleep routine, which is the um, a short period before the teenagers uh, get in bed um, and um, and the time that they actually trying to fall asleep Uh, i want to know their sleep environment i want to know if they share the room what is the light at the noise level what is the room temperature and of course presence of electronics Um, i want to know some intrinsic factors is there snoring going on is there leg movements right both of them can cause sleep interruptions is there family history of any sleep-related illnesses, like sleep apnea? other parasomnias? Parasomnias are sleepwalking, sleep talking. Does that happen? We know parasomnias happen in younger children, but does it resurface? It can indicate that there's really significant uh, insufficient sleep, or there's um, a, something like sleep apnea going on. Bedwetting, right? Uh, again, can be a symptom of obstructive sleep apnea and nightmares. Extreme, and- Extrinsic factors that affect sleep include caffeine, right? We know that caffeine impacts on our sleep, the the consistency and the timing of uh, uh, sleep schedule, and of course, a uh, use of technology. Uh, I'm interesting about daytime effects, right? Is there hyperactivity? we know that the younger kids when they get tired they don't slow down and snooze but on the contrary they become hyper so hyperactivity is really a symptom of uh insufficient sleep in childhood um, is there hyperactivity going on is there sleepiness in the older adolescents as they go through puberty and they become adult we do see the sleepiness is there emotional instability uh, are there problems with the uh, cognitive function and school performance does this teenager take naps during the day to compensate for insufficient sleep? And sometimes we use sleep diaries, which is a nice, uh, a non-expensive tool, which it basically a table where we ask the teenagers to uh, put the timing of when they get in bed, when they fall asleep, if there's any uh, points during the uh, night that they wake up, when do they wake up for the day, do they use caffeine? So uh, we, tr- we usually use it for over um, for about two weeks, so we can get a picture of uh, what is this teenager' um, s- sleep schedule. Of course, the caveat is that it's filled up by the teenager, so it's not uh, it's very subjective tools. What are the objective tools that we have uh, to assess sleep? Of course, we have the sleep study or the polysomnography, the official name. Uh, a sleep study is an overnight study. It's a multi-channel study. You can see uh, up top uh, the multiple uh, measurements that we do overnight. This is uh, younger kids that is set up for a sleep study, so many, many sensors placed on the body. Um, usually, we use a sleep study to look at uh, quality of sleep, and we look for any sleep interrupters like a obstructive sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome, um, and then um, kids that have parasomnias in an older age, which is not a typical age, uh, we sometimes suspect um, obstructive sleep apnea, restless leg, or a partial seizure. Um, many of the, the teens comes to, come to us because they're tired during the day. They have um, uh, the daytime sleepiness. Um, and what we use to assess that is the multiple sleep latency test or the mslt mslt is a daytime study it's always uh, done following an overnight study because we want to confirm the patient was sleeping well the night before we did the uh, mslt evaluation and um, the mslt is done during the day so once the patient wakes up we give them uh, opportunity to fall asleep every two hours. So every two hours they go get in bed, we turn off the lights, we give them an opportunity to fall asleep. We do it five times during the day. Uh, we look at the uh, how quickly they fall asleep and if they get into REM sleep. And MSLT is really a test that helps us Quantify uh, the daytime sleepiness. So again, daytime sleepiness can happen because there's just insufficient sleep, but could be a part of a hypersomnia syndrome, like we see with narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia, and the MSLT helps us uh, differentiate between those those two causes. And then finally, if we want to get a more objective information about the teen schedule, we can use actigraphy. And actigraphy is a wristwatch, like you see uh, on the slide. Um, A teenage is wearing it for two weeks. um, And um, eh, this watch measures movement. So if we eh, assume that when there is significant movement, uh, eh, that it's daytime and the. data but that the patient is awake like you see over here increase in movement we assume that the patient is awake um, and when there's no movement we assume that the patient is asleep like you see in the blue area so wearing actigraphy for two weeks gives us a really nice schedule like you see on the um, a right side of a whenever a, pa- a patient gets in bed falls asleep and wakes up what you see on the left side is i'm sorry when you see on the left on the right side is the adolescent with delayed sleep phase you can see that uh waking uh, falling asleep is the earliest uh bedtime is really midnight and then there's delay or even inconsistent uh bedtime throughout the week so this is a typical uh, actigraphy report for for these kids So let's talk about circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders, Um, and really what determines our internal clock or when would we uh, fall asleep and when would we wake up are two forces that happen in our body. The uh, process H or process S uh, is really the sleep load. The, The further we get from the episode of sleep, the stronger the sleep drive is, right? uh and the other one is the circadian rhythm it's process c and process c uh kind of takes us through the day the big in the morning we have uh a good energy right we just woke up around siesta time right 1 to 2 p.m. we start we feel kind of a decrease in energy um this is the best time for naps if so if if any one of you is interested And then in the afternoon, we kind of get a second wind, we get extra energy until bedtime comes. And then we have a quick drop in energy and uh, we have a very strong uh, sleep force. Um, So these two elements, two processes really determine uh, our sleepiness level um, and determine our circadian rhythms. Um, So there's different circadian sleep disorders out there. Um, We have the jet lag disorder, the shift work disorder that we know very well we all have been there uh, advanced sleep wake phase that is typical to the elderly when they fall asleep at 6 p.m they wake up at 2 p.m. 2 a.m uh, but really what we see in teenagers is the delayed sleep phase disorder and what actually happens is there is a shift of the internal clock and when i say internal clock i mean the melatonin levels so um, usually our melatonin levels are really low during the day, keeping us awake and alert. And about an hour before we our usual bedtime, uh, melatonin starts to increase. Um, and melatonin increases sorry melatonin increases over an hour until it reaches the peak. The peak stays up all night, and about an hour before we're about to wake up, it drops down, so we can wake up and feel alert. Uh, what happens with the teenagers is what you see in the yellow line uh, the whole melatonin excretion is shifted for about an hour to three hours depends on how bad it is Um, which would have been great if a teenager could wake up whenever uh, um, he or she uh, wanted to but life is not like that and they need to wake up early for school and which cuts on the uh, period of sleep. So keep in mind that even if you want your teenager to go to bed at eight or nine, they're just not sleepy in the evening. It's very difficult for them uh, to fall asleep. The other element of uh, building our internal clock or that contributes to the circadian rhythm is light. We we talk about the two zygebers or uh, timekeepers in our body. One of them is melatonin and the other one is light. And melatonin really responds to light. So if we have bright light in times that we're not supposed to have that, uh, there is a shift in the melatonin excretion and in our internal clock. And we know that the vast majority 80 to 90 percent of adolescents use smartphones within the one hour before bedtime and this study shows very nicely how there is a, a decrease decrease in sleep duration uh, that is really uh, has a dose response uh, curve with how many hours of screen time these adolescents are using so technology really uh, it enforces this delayed sleep phase, and it, it really affects sleep in many ways. Um, in one way, it just replaces sleep, right? So if uh, a teenager is watching a movie or texting with their friends, uh, they're definitely not sleeping, right? Uh, it really takes away the the, the it cuts into the sleep. Um, But also it disrupts the circadian rhythm by uh, being exposed to bright light at bedtime, which is not a time that we're supposed to be exposed to bright light. Um, And the other thing is really disrupts sleep, sleep. and it could be because of mental or emotional involvement with that text with the friends or things that they see on TikTok, on social media, but it also uh, fragments sleep because of physiological arousals, right? They wake up in the middle of the night to check the phone to see what happened. What did they miss? So how do we treat uh, delayed sleep phase? Um, So if you look at the uh, graph at the bottom, you can see that uh, at the dark blue, this is delayed sleep. Uh, And what we try to do is we try to pull um, bedtime a little earlier and we try to push waking up a little earlier, right? So we use the two Zygerbers we have. We use melatonin at bedtime to induce sleep and we use bright light in the morning to push the uh, wake up a little earlier. Um, we'll talk about use of melatonin um, as a chronobiotic in, uh, in the next slide. Um, but all that intervention on delayed sleep sits on good education on sleep and establishing a good sleep hygiene. And that's done a lot by cognitive behavioral therapy, which we will touch in a second. Um, we really ask the teenagers to uh, avoid bright light exposure uh, at bedtime, at least the hour before they want to fall asleep. Um, and uh, some some people will use the uh, a blue light a glasses to decrease uh, light exposure. In the morning, we have them <clears throat> stare at the light box uh, a, to, again, try to push bedtime a little earlier. And sometimes in very challenging cases, we use chronotherapy, which is asking the teenager to actually stay awake later and later, we push the bedtime over the 24 hours all the way back to the uh, desired bedtime. So, of course, it's extreme, they need to um, miss a few days in school when we do that, Uh, but it's a very useful tool in uh, resistant cases let's talk about melatonin and melatonin is probably the most common sleep medicine that is prescribed in pediatrics and the most uh, studied one Uh, one of the reasons is because we we try to avoid using sleep medication in children Um, so when we melatonin can be used in two ways it can be used as a a sleep inducing medication and i think uh, for many of the kids that i see in the sleep clinic this is their use so we use relatively higher doses two to five milligram, um, and we use it uh, uh, 30 to 60 minutes before bedtime. This is to induce sleep. Uh, but when we use melatonin as a chronic biotic, uh, the doses are much smaller. We really try to kickstart the internal, internal melatonin. We're not trying to induce sleep. Um, and we will use it the three to four hours before the desired bedtime to try, as you remember from the previous slide, to pull the bedtime earlier. Of course, again, uh, this is all done with a good sleep hygiene and timed light exposure. Um, we know that melatonin is safe to use, specifically for the short-term, short-term use. Uh, many studies look at that and confirmed. Um, few studies that were done mostly in children with ADHD or autism also didn't show any adverse effects for a long-term use of melatonin. And one of the newest uh, melatonin preparation uh, is a long-acting melatonin with delayed uh, um, release, uh, which can help with, uh, especially with the children with autism that have multiple nighttime awakenings. Um, Unfortunately, this is uh, a pill, so they need to know how to swallow a pill, but otherwise it's a great um, preparation. So what other sleep disorders are common in in teenagers? One of them is insomnia. Uh, And insomnia is defined by any interruption to sleep. It could be difficulty initiating sleep or maintaining sleep, Um, early morning awakenings as well, which is not commonly seen in teenagers, and also just non-restorative sleep. Um, And that should go together with daytime impairment, Uh, things like inattention, mood disturbances, problems with memory and concentration and impaired performance and it should last for at least three months how common is insomnia in adolescent you all know that it's very common um, the median age of onset is about 11 years of age so it starts pretty early um, and of course the uh, issues with initiating sleep is the major um, insomnia syndrome that is seen about ten percent of adolescent meets the DSM5 criteria for insomnia that we just reviewed uh, but a, a, over thirty percent uh, uh, report at least some symptoms of insomnia and I think most of the most of our teenagers are really not diagnosed but definitely suffer from insomnia um, and we know that anxiety is very common in adolescent and at least Uh, as much as 90% of uh, teenagers with uh, anxiety will also suffer from sleep problems. So, very very common issues. And of course, the consequences of insomnia uh, relates to insufficient sleep, like we see with uh, any other um, cases of insufficient sleep, like obstructive sleep apnea or just uh, a poor sleep. Uh, increase in crowd crashes uh, increase in school violence-related behavior, uh, poor relationship with family and peers, poor academic performance, obesity, uh, mood disturbances, withdrawal, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and use of sedative and hypnotic medication—all were described in con- in uh, conjunction with insomnia. How do we treat insomnia in children and uh, teenagers? Um, mostly with mostly with behavioral interventions Um, many times when i see these patients in my clinic um, they will ask for medicine they want medicine they want to fall asleep and i always say that if i teach you how to fall asleep this is a tool that you can take for the rest of your life if i give you medicine you will need it lifelong so every um in every aspect we really try to uh, do more behavioral interventions than any other intervention Um, And uh, we are very lucky here in Connecticut Children's that we have Dr. Linnell Schneeberg, who is our sleep psychologist, uh, expert in uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia or CBTI. Um, And uh, you can um, refer um, these patients to to see her. So what are the elements of uh, a cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia? again we go back to the basics we talk about sleep hygiene we know that the best uh, conditions to fall asleep is if the room is cool dark and quiet so we talk about how can we get that Um, we talk about avoidance of caffeine uh, during the day and electronics or bright light about an hour before bedtime Uh, and we talk about set sleep schedule during the weekdays and the weekends and this probably the Hardest thing to do, but also the most important thing. Um, we use a lot of relaxation therapy at bedtime. You have to remember and, and I think it's true for us as well. Um, we're very busy all day long. teenagers very busy all day long they don 't have time to process or think about things that happen during the day when they lay in bed and they shut off everything. This is the time when all the things that happen during the day come to their mind and they have rush of thoughts, and a lot of the times those thoughts bring in some anxiety or frustration, which excites the body. And when the body is excited, it's not a conducive condition to fall asleep. So we teach the teenagers how to relax their mind, relax their body, and also challenge um, anxiety provoking thoughts uh, and kind of throw them out of their head. Um, We do stimulus control uh, with, with teenagers, we would like their bedtime to be correlated with sleep. So we ask them not to perform any other activity besides sleep um, uh, when they get in bed. Uh, we, want, we, we want to avoid uh, them doing their homeworks, getting frustrated, getting upset, uh, uh, being on their phone and get being upset with their uh, peers uh, uh, tied into their bed. So. Bed should be the place where you go, you turn off the lights, you close your eyes, and you fall asleep. so when you create that connection uh, it 's easier to fall asleep. Uh, sometimes we use light therapy on awakening, we talk about that for the delayed sleep, and in very uh, in extreme cases, we use sleep restriction, which I personally don 't like to do, um, but if you have a teenager, as a teenager that um had few nights of bed sleep, it could be because he had a challenging test in the morning or uh he was upset about or she was upset about um a certain thing. Um and the and they weren't able to fall asleep the following night. Um a, they get in bed and they say, Maybe if, the, if tonight I won't be able to fall asleep. Uh, and if I won't be able to fall asleep, I'm going to do very bad in my exam. And just that line of thoughts uh, increases anxiety um, and, and uh, build up the stress. Um, by doing sleep restriction and uh, asking them to, to, to get in bed and get only six hours of sleep, you assure that once they get in bed, they fall asleep. And you create this. Tight connection between getting in bed, falling asleep, increasing their confidence that they are able to get in bed and fall asleep. And of course, once you achieve that, you expand sleep back to eight or nine hours uh, as needed. Let's talk about coffee. So who does not drink coffee? And I'm probably one of these people bowing to the pot of coffee there, Um, but coffee has consequences, right? So use of caffeine was associated with shorter sleep, increasing sleep onset, increasing wake time after sleep onset. So it fragments our sleep. And through that, it actually increases daytime sleepiness paradoxically. So it's important to know that caffeine works pretty fast, right? It works within 15 to 30 minutes, but it stays in our system for a while. So it depends on what kind of metabolizer of caffeine you are. Uh, It can stay in your system for as long as seven hours. So if we um, um, consult to the adolescent and we say, okay, you need your uh, cup of coffee in the morning, try not to uh, drink coffee afternoon because then it's going to start impact your nighttime sleep. A few words about narcolepsy, and as you know, narcolepsy is um, um, associated with excessive daytime sleepiness. So when a teenager comes and complains about daytime sleepiness, definitely something to consider. Uh, Now, narcolepsy is genetic. It's a syndrome. It has a few symptoms that reflects the uh, a pathophysiology of of the disease so it's a very fascinating disease uh, where rem sleep there's intrusion of rem sleep into awake and into different uh, other stages of sleep Um, if we think about what happens during rem sleep we dream and we have muscle paralysis in order not to act our dreams so when there's intrusion of rem into awake we can sometimes get symptoms of cataplexy and we're going to play this video of Rusty, the narcoleptic dog. Um, basically, cataplexy is a phenomenon that is gets triggered by uh, a strong emotion. Um, uh, usually something positive, uh, laughter, uh, when a teenager cracking up laughing, they lose muscle tone and they fall. Uh, um, I'm sorry, it's not playing. All right, All right. so what you see this here is rusty. rusty, and I'm sorry. You can mute the video. This what you can see here is the Rusty is uh, in the field, and he's very happy, and he's walking around, and he's so excited that he falls. He gets his cataplectic event, and he falls. Uh, so this is our cataplexy. Uh, hypnagogic hallucination is um, a when we dream when we are awake right so again REM intruding into awake sleep paralysis uh, also uh, sleep or um, uh, the muscle paralysis that is involved with REM and unfortunately these patients also get fragmented have fragmented sleep and insomnia um, and you can see in this slide that the peak incidence of uh, a diagnostic narcolepsy is during teenage sleep. So this is when they start feeling the symptoms uh, and be affected. Obstructive sleep apnea definitely can happen in teenagers. We usually um, used to think about uh, obstructive sleep apnea happening in the younger kids where it's associated with adenotonsillar hypertrophy. But there's definitely a secondary peak in adolescent. Uh, in that time, it's, uh, some of the times it's associated with obesity, Uh, And some of it is because uh, the adolescent, again, we're talking about its transition period. And once you go over, uh, get through puberty, um, there is decrease in innervation to the upper airways, uh, which makes you more prone to obstructive sleep apnea. And that's why we see much more uh, sleep apnea in adults than in children. Uh, the symptoms are also uh, can be different. So daytime consequence of ab- obstructive sleep apnea start with hyperactivity that we see in the younger kids, but as they get older, we do see the daytime sleepiness. Um, there's exacerbation of the delayed sleep phase that we naturally see naturally see in adolescents, um, and it also goes with mood disorder. Mood is very sen- um, uh, affected by sleep in adolescent. There's increase in risk-taking behavior, risk of ob- obesity, and again, increased rate of motor vehicle accidents. This is a quick slide that, to show uh, how a sleep apnea looks on a, a polysomnography or on a sleep study. As you can see, we have multiple channels that we measure, but I do want you to look at the bottom four lines: the blue and the pink, and the two green ones. The blue and the pink is measurement of flow that we measure through the nose. And the two green lines are the uh, chest and abdominal effort. And you can see very clearly that this guy has uh, apnea. You can see that there's no flow on the flow channel, but the chest and the abdomen are still fighting and still trying to get the air in. This is a classic uh, uh, documentation of obstructive sleep apnea. And of course we always look at tonsils and adenoids and we send for an EAT referral, but usually in teenager, the treatment is uh, CPAP and you can see different celebrities trying to promote use of CPAP uh, in teenagers. So we learn about the problem, we know it's there, we know it's common, we know the consequences, but what can we do? And that's where public health advocacy comes in. And, um, really the advocacy issue is the school start times. Mm -hmm. And really in the late 90s, the beginning of the 2000s, there was the realization that school start time is an issue with adolescent sleep. And this is a study that showed that as little as 30 minutes earlier school start time had significant effect on uh, behavior. Um, It made the sleep duration shorter. It increased sleepiness. Uh, Students report difficulty concentrating, there was increase in behavioral problem, and higher absenteeism. Um, Of course, moving school start time is a major uh, change, both for the uh, education system and for the families, right, to coordinate different school start time. But I'll try to convince you that it's worthwhile. So uh, one of the first studies comes from Minneapolis that showed that uh, in Minneapolis um, public school system, 18,000 high schoolers uh, had their school start time delayed from 7.15 to 8.40, right? It's a major uh, advancement in, uh, in school start time. But they showed that these kids had the same bedtime. They didn't go to bed later. But they had the chance to sleep for an extra hour. So overall, there was a prolongation of the sleep period. There was improved attendance rate. There was less tardiness. Uh, There were reports that the students were more calm and less tired. This study didn't show change in grades, but in the next slide, I will show you um, improvement in grades. Uh, There was improvement in teacher satisfaction, and there were fewer visits to the nurse's um, office. This is a slide that talks about in, improved academic performance. So the Chicago public schools showed improved academic performance, uh, mostly in the first period classes compared to the uh, afternoon classes. Uh, in North Carolina, they showed that one hour later shift in school start time was linked to increase in reading test scores and in math test scores. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, other multi-site studies showed significant increase in grade point average in core subjects like math, English, science, and social studies. Just moving the start time one hour or, uh, later. Um, and now I'm kind of closing the loop and I wanna talk about motor vehicle accidents. So how delayed uh, sl- a school start affects the MVAs. So in Kentucky in 2008, it showed that the car crash rates, uh, um, after they delayed the school start decreased by 16 percent in minnesota they showed that uh they, they actually showed uh, more robust numbers a crash a reduction for specifically uh, teens 16 to 18 years of age decreased by 65 to 70 percent pretty amazing uh a very recent study from denver public school showed that uh, significant decrease in reports of drowsy driving in teenagers. And what they showed is that that effect uh, was maintained two hours after the change in school start time. So again, uh, just looking at uh, uh, changes in uh, school time and the effect on sleep, I want you to look at the blue and green lines. You can see that once it was implemented, there was no change in bedtime, but there was a significant change in uh, sleep um, length and significant later wake-up time, which altogether increased the uh, overall sleep time. So what's going on in Connecticut? Um, This is a slide that I found from 2020. I don't have anything uh, more uh, recent. But we're not doing that great. Uh, The average start time in the state of Connecticut is 7.39 a.m., which is one of the earliest start nationwide. So we definitely have work to do here. And for the last few minutes, I want to talk a little bit about the effect of COVID-19 on teenage sleep. Um, And what we've seen is that um, the pretty similar effect to the late school start time. basically what happened in a uh, COVID is that school moved to online so now teenagers could sleep a little longer right you don't have the you don't have to wake and shower and get dressed and get in the bus and drive to school uh, so teenager actually could <clears throat> a, a sleep a little later um, and what you see here uh, is that Uh, So, again, there was no change to bedtime, but there was change to awake time, and the longer the teenagers could sleep, the longer their sleep duration was. Sorry. So what we've seen during COVID and when school was online is that teenagers actually slept longer. So I'm going to summarize and say that adolescence is a transitional problem from a transitional period from childhood to adulthood, and sleep disturbances can really um, be affected by childhood elements and adulthood elements. Um, The transition affects sleep behaviors and sleep disorders, and in adolescence, common sleep disorders include insomnia, delayed sleep phase syndrome, hypersomnia, narcolepsy, and obstructive sleep apnea. And lastly, policy measures and sleep education can benefit adolescent sleep health. I'm gonna stop here and ask for your questions.
0: Thank you uh, very much, uh, Aviva. That was was really, really great. And we have a lot of questions uh, that have come in, uh, so we'll take them one at a time. Please, if you have questions, make sure you put them in the Q&A section. And um, again, all uh, more than 130 people joined today live, and I'm sure there'll be many others that will join at a different time. Uh, The first question, will will the use of oral melatonin interfere with the natural production of melatonin later on?
1: That's a very good question. So um, what we do when we use melatonin is we really train our internal melatonin uh, to be excreted. So it's not like we're blocking our internal melatonin we're just boosting it so um so no there shouldn't be an effect what what we do do with melatonin is we play around with uh bedtime right we kind of change the internal clock to either fall asleep earlier or later um so we can definitely maneuver the, the internal melatonin production but we don't suppress it
0: um from Dr. Zellner, The data would indicate that the elementary students should go to school earlier, adolescents later, but this has not been implemented due to alleged issues around um, extracurricular activity. What do you suggest in this regard?
1: Very true. So I kind of touched on the pro, you know the problem that in uh, that are around the moving the bedtime, and I completely agree. I mean, uh, elementary school children they usually have. I mean, they they have perfectly normal sleep schedule, but they are uh, advanced sleep phase, right? They fall asleep at seven and they wake up at six. Um, So for them, it's natural to start school at seven, right? It's the peak of their alertness. Um, But that's not that's not true to middle school and high school now. Once you implement delayed um, a school start day, of course, it impinges on after-school activities because now school ends later and there's less time to do all the other activities. And as, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of demand on a teenager uh, after-school time, right? with homework, with uh, working, uh, and with extracurricular activities. Um, so it's definitely an issue, uh, but I believe that uh, it can be mitigated, it can be managed, um, and the benefit is so robust that it's worthwhile.
0: The next question is Ed. Uh, it's just more of a comment that um, one of our pediatricians said, I tell my patients that they, what they should do, then negotiate what they will do.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, so the, for the teenager to negotiate?
0: Yeah. He, oh, is, oh, he, for he the says school? he tells the patients what to do, but then negotiates what they will do.
1: <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Um, I mean, teenagers these days, they're very savvy and they smart. Uh, they're also not stupid I mean they read about uh, issues with sleep and I think this new generation coming up uh, they're very educated Um, so I think a lot of it is to send them to the right places to read about things to uh, you know um, talk to them about their benefit for their health and yeah and create a contract where uh, they will state what they're willing to do um, as close as to you know other our recommendation and our uh, expectations from them, um, but I, I I completely hear you i they negotiate with me. Too.
0: another question is there a use of full spectrum light in a circadian appropriate way
1: um, so you're talking about the bright light in yeah. the morning, I assume um, bright light is very powerful tool to um aim, aim, to entrain our circadian rhythms. Uh, light is really the timekeeper. That, that's what determines when we fall asleep, when we uh, wake up. So some people used it uh, in circadian rhythm. Some people use it for jet lag. So people that travel frequently between different time zones will use melatonin and a light therapy to uh, entrain their circadian rhythm and try to avoid jet lag as much as they want. Um, I hope I answered the question,
0: I think you did yes uh, from dr. Corcoran, uh, I would like to encourage providers to remind adolescents and all their patients for that matter that spending some time outdoors during the day is good for sleep um, and uh, you know she's developing an app which you can look in the chat there, but uh, comments about exercise and being outdoors even in the in the winter time
1: uh, absolutely and uh, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned it uh, during the talk um one interesting thing about sleep is um, uh, important for us, too. Um, when we fall asleep, our body temperature drop. Um, and um, and that's where the recommendation of sleeping in a cool environment comes in. So it's kind of inducing sleep or bringing sleep faster. Um, if we do anything that increase our body temperature right before bedtime, it will make our sleep latency or the time that it take us takes us to fall asleep a little longer. So we usually uh, will recommend not eating heavy meals before bedtime because that increases our body temperature. We recommend not exercising the hour before bedtime, so you shouldn't come from a a training, drop your bag and try to fall asleep, it's not going to happen immediately. Um, and of course keep the the room on on the cool side. However, daytime exercise links uh, very clearly to better sleep at night. So we definitely recommend uh, a daytime exercise for kids and adults that have uh, insomnia.
0: Um, Can you um, just briefly touch upon the evaluation and treatment of narcolepsy? Or is that an entire new session?
1: (laughs) Definitely a a topic for a whole uh, lecture. but um, So evaluation of narcolepsy. I'm just going to put a small um, recommendation there that if there is a concern about narcolepsy, uh, patients should be referred for a sleep physician uh, evaluation. Um, But what we do is we, of course, we take a detailed history, and we talked about the five typical symptoms of narcolepsy unfortunately narcolepsy doesn't have a clear diagnostic test Um, there are some tests that can direct us to uh, the diagnosis so we know it's genetic we know it's related to hla typing so uh, we can test for specific hla typing for narcolepsy Um, however 10 percent of the population still has that uh, link and they don't have narcolepsy so if i have a child that I suspect have narcolepsy and I have them tested and the testing's is negative, they're less likely to have narcolepsy. Again, not completely uh, out of the picture, but less likely to have narcolepsy. If they're positive, they can be part of that 10% that has that. Um, the second, so uh, good history looking for cataplexy, for sleep paralysis, for uh, a, a daytime hallucination, for vivid dreams. Uh, and for fragmented sleep, uh, we can do HLA testing. Um, and the, really the test that uh, makes the diagnosis is the multiple sleep latency test, uh, as I described. Um, so um, I would say if, if you have a child that you suspect having daytime sleepiness, just refer them to us and we will do the workout. Uh,
0: from Dr. Spiegelman, and there's a couple of comments related to this, uh, primary care pediatricians are treating increasing numbers of children with psychotropics can you comment on the effect of ssris on sleep Are teens seen for sleep evaluation screen for you know mental health disorders what's the association with it
1: yeah um again a topic for a whole uh, different uh, lecture um so yeah um ssris are really a double-edged sword um they can uh, help with falling asleep Um, they're definitely inducing sleep if they're used before bedtime Um, they also decrease anxiety and we talked about how anxiety impacts the uh, um, sleep onset Um, so by reducing the anxiety you can definitely improve um, um, insomnia however um, ssri decreases your REM sleep, increases your deep sleep, so you are more, you get more restful sleep, but you're um, dreaming less, and we know that dreaming is our way of processing information that we learn during the day and embed them into long term memory. The other thing that uh, SSRIs induce is uh, restless leg movement, which is um, a Uh, unresisting, uh, uncomfortable feelings in your legs that make you shake your legs, and when we move our body, uh, of course, it's difficult to fall asleep and it can wake us up in the middle of the night, so they can induce uh, a nighttime fragmentation. So again, the double-edged sword, they need to be titrated well, Uh, definitely they have effect um, on sleep.
0: So a few more questions. Uh, uh, thanks for a great lecture it's from Dr. Cohenabo. Children with uh, ASD have extra difficulties that are very difficult to manage early in toddlerhood. How early can you start melatonin?
1: That's a very good question. Um, there's really no lower age. So first of all, let me back up and say melatonin is not a medicine; it's a supplement, and therefore it's not FDA uh, supervised, uh, which makes it a a, a big problem because there's no uh, supervision of the uh, production of melatonin right uh in canada it's considered medicine and we know that when you take liquid melatonin there is melatonin in there but in the states because it's not regulated we don't know what's in those pills or what in the, in those bottles uh, so that's one problem with melatonin uh, but there's no lower uh, edge uh, lower age of starting melatonin And studies uh, went as um, young ages, two years, using melatonin, and they were shown to be effective, especially with kids with uh, autism. Uh,
0: From Dr. Adelheid, fabulous talk. We see lots of kids with diffuse pain, fatigue, and sleep disturbance. Are there specific factors which should prompt a referral to you? Another sort of big question, from Dr. Adelheid, rheumatology.
1: Right. i think that you know uh, there's certain basics and i think in my lecture i kind of came back to you know uh good sleep schedule good sleep hygiene maintaining the room dark and cool avoiding electronics at bedtime um um, i mean this is something that can be done in the pediatrician's office uh just good advice send the family with some uh, ideas recommendations if if you um, fail in improving their sleep or improving the daytime sleepiness, I think that makes sense to refer them to us because we can screen through, kind of make sure there's no other uh, sleep disorder coexisting, and we can refer to our sleep psychologists to uh, do the CBT for insomnia.
0: Yeah, just uh, this, just a comment that uh, insomnia could be the first manifestation of major depression. And we have to make sure that gets recognized and we don't misdiagnose major depression.
1: Absolutely.
0: The, the other question is, uh, can you comment on red light therapy for sleep induction and maintenance? Is there any basis for this? Red light red therapy? Light? Yeah, I don't know what, yeah. Red light therapy, have you? you don't,
1: I am not familiar okay. with so that. So we'll, we'll look into
0: red light, and thank you for that question. Um, this is also a common question. How much advocacy has been done in the Department of Education in Connecticut School to help support better sleeping and those education habits? You know, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you're aware of what's going on. So we'll, we'll follow up on that.
1: Right. I, I agree. I yeah. agree. And I have to say in other uh, school districts where they had this change uh, in school start time, it was a collaborative effort by parents. I think parents were the driving force, usually, together with specialists um, and um, And a, you know public figure, so um, and then the, definitely uh, need to work on that.
0: The last question or is you mentioned that later school start time does does not result in later bedtime, which seems to be relatively constant. What factors do we influence bedtime
1: so uh, bedtime again um is difficult in teenagers because of their the delayed circadian rhythm. Um, so again, if we want to advance the bedtime, we want them to go to bed earlier. Uh, we talked about the uh, CBT um, elements. We um, create a new routine. You have to be mindful that if you if your teenager can only fall asleep at midnight, but you want them to go to bed at ten, they're actually in a different time zone. They're they're on the west coast. You ask them to go by east coast time. So. This is not something that can happen overnight. You can't just tell them, okay, go to bed earlier. It doesn't happen. So it really, it's a process. It has to take place over a couple of weeks uh, with set sleep time, good sleep routine, uh, a good sleep hygiene. And sometimes you can use melatonin for that, just as a short term, just to move the bedtime and then stop when when you achieve the desired bedtime.
0: Well, again, Arviva, thank you very much for an outstanding presentation. As you can see from the numbers of questions we got, this is something that is really important for the pediatricians in our community. Uh, for those of you, we we have a, a, an amazing uh, uh, sleep center here, Connecticut Children's. Uh, so if, please go ahead and make those referrals. We'll be happy to see the patients for you. Uh, so again, thank you, Dr. Valer, for a wonderful presentation and for all of, the, all of those who were more than 130 that joined us. Um, have a great day. Uh, stay safe. We'll see you again next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org podcast grand rounds.